This is The Guardian. Today, is Madonna the most influential female artist of all time? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's my thing about Madonna. I think she is an absolute joke now. She has become an embarrassing shambles. I love Madonna's artistry and her just amazing creativity. If Madonna had had any common sense, she would have made a record like Ray of Light, stayed away from the dance stuff. But no, she had to prove that she was like, and she looks like a f***ing fairground stripper. Madonna is a, is, she's a great inspiration. She's amazing. She's the queen, you know. She acts like a, a spoiled brat all the time. And it seems to me when you, reach the kind of acclaim that she's reached and can do whatever you want to do, you should be a little bit more magnanimous and a little bit less of a At this point, everyone thinks they know Madonna. She sold more records than any other female artist in history. 330 million albums worldwide. And she has polarized the public ever since she launched herself on the New York music scene more than 40 years ago. This week, after performing a sold-out run across Europe, Madonna is back in New York with her first ever Greatest Hits show. Two years in the making, the Celebration Tour is taking in 78 dates worldwide, with over 200 travelling crew members to mark her 40 years in the business. Confession, I am a lifelong Madonna fan, and I see her influence everywhere. Taylor Swift's eras, Beyonce's performance art productions, Lady Gaga's aesthetic. But for someone who has dominated pop for so long, why is she so misunderstood? From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, how Madonna changed culture forever. Gabriel, you've written A Rebel Life, which is a meticulous 800-page biography about Madonna. Why Madonna? Well, I came across that really incredible 2016 speech she did for the Billboard Music Woman of the Year. I mean, here she is, the most famous, powerful female entertainer in the world. And she started her speech by saying, I stand before you as a doormat. Oh, I mean, a female entertainer. And this was right yeah. after the Trump election where he defeated Hillary Clinton. And, and women in the United States, probably women around the world, were really shaken to their core. And it was so raw and so powerful. 
Thank you for acknowledging my ability to continue my career for 34 years in the face of blatant misogyny, sexism, constant bullying, and relentless abuse. And I realized at that moment, I knew nothing about Madonna. She exceeded all of my expectations and really surprised me. So I started reading about her, still not thinking of her as a subject. And the more I read, the more I realized that the Madonna we know through the headlines and even the books, I don't think is really the artist Madonna. It's the celebrity Madonna. So from that moment, I, I started thinking of her as a subject. Mary, had you always been a fan? And if so, what were your early memories or impressions of her? I, have no, I was never a Madonna fan. Wow. And that's what, okay. that was what was so shocking because I came to this project without any expectations how I would feel about her, just knowing that she was fascinating and that she'd impacted the world. And so this was somebody worth spending, you know, five years with. So you're of the same generation, but you weren't particularly impressed with her back then. This wasn't music that moved you or that you listened to. No, I had the misconception that, first of all, that she was a pop artist. And to me, a pop artist was someone who was a product of a production line. You know, that there was a room full of producers and a room full of writers who wrote the lyrics. And, you know, that person, Madonna, or any kind of usually female singer, shows up, sings the songs, goes home, collects a paycheck, and that's it. I had no idea, um, first of all, how miscategorized she was. But secondly, you know, how really involved from start to finish in every aspect of her of production she was. And and when I learned that, when I came to understand her artistry, you know, um, I was shocked and amazed by it. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's quite powerful, that mythologizing around Madonna and that narrative that was set quite early on. That, like you said, people thought or think that she just just turn up and she does her bit, cashes in the check and off she goes again. And actually, it's the hard work of others. But as you've discovered, in there, from the beginning, has her fingers all over everything. Yeah. And I wonder if now that you, you, know, you see her as an artist, where in that sense does her story begin for you? Oh, every artist is a, is a little egg waiting to hatch. You know, her little egg waiting to hatch, of course, began in Michigan with heartbreak with her mother's death and her father's, what she thought abandonment when he remarried and just the struggles and dislocation she felt. You know, she never felt part of her social scene. I think when she got to New York in the late 70s, early 80s, that's where her egg hatched. That's where Madonna, the artist, was born. And I think if people understood that, they wouldn't think of her as a pop star, as this kind of production line creature, because that milieu she came out of, there's absolute freedom, social, cultural, creative, sexual. And what they come up with is so powerful, it shakes the world. And that's what was happening in late 70s, early 80s, New York. And Madonna was in the middle of that. And she was poor. The people around her were misfits, you know, according to society in the extreme. The focus wasn't money or success. It was just creativity, pure and simple. And the place where that creativity occurred, where those people would go to blow off steam, would be the dance floor. Okay, so Jesse, where are we right now? So we are outside a uh, marble tile showroom that for uh, several years in the 80s was a club called Danceteria. This, this is it. This is it. This is Danceteria. Yeah. 
uh, which is like one of the most important clubs in New York music history. Uh, everyone you can think of from that era played here. At opening night was an REM show. You know, everyone from Nick Cave to Sun Ra would have played here. Uh, but Madonna, before she was really known as anything, was a regular at this place. She was just coming and dancing every what, night. What year are we talking? Uh, we're talking like early 80s. When she starts coming here, you know, she's already kind of trying to make a name for herself. So she had a, a demo tape that she was passing around and no one really cared. One of the DJs here, actually, a guy named Freddie Bastone, has told me this story about Madonna trying to come up to the DJ booth and hand him a tape and he would like lock the door to it. <laughs> uh, but there was one DJ here named Mark Kamens who finally accepted her tape, started playing it. And it did well enough that the two of them kind of started working together. They very quickly became a couple. So he produced her first single, mm. uh, which, was, which everybody. was Everybody. And she made her live debut performing it at Danceteria. And now, Noan Tiandis is proud to present the world premiere of Sire Recording Artist, Madonna. Like, get up and do your thing! Like, her first performance, she's on stage with a couple dancers, and they all have suit jackets and bowler hats, and it's, it's honestly kind of endearing and, and dorky. Uh, but she was already known at that point, Danceteria, because she had started working Coat Check here. So when that record comes out, it's yeah. very much a dance interior record because it's by the coach. Even in terms of the employees of the club, she wasn't terribly unique in that way because LL Cool J was a doorman here. Sade. Uh, Sade was a bartender. The Beastie Boys were um, bus boys. Yeah. You know, always tour on her first tour with her, right? They did. They were her opening act. And everyone hated them. She's like, no, they're sticking around. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Madonna, you know, she's regularly, she starts regularly performing here. She opened for the American debut of The Smiths, which, yeah, she didn't even make it onto the poster. It was just like, uh, well, there's one other big Madonna thing. Susan! Good going, stranger. So, after she breaks up with Mark Kamens, she stops, you know, she's still performing here, but she kind of stops coming quite as much. But a few years later, they make Desperately Seeking Susan. And there is that nightclub scene yeah. where Susan, played by Madonna, is at Danceteria, dancing to her own song, <laughs> to the group. And that was like 86. So it's only like a few years after, she's massively going up like Yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because when I read back through your book and I was aware of all these names that she was linked with, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat was her boyfriend, Keith Haring was a close friend, Andy Warhol was fascinated by her, and somehow never quite put the jigsaw together that actually they were all very much part of each other's story. They were much closer than I'd given them credit for. And, you know, she knew these people before they became blue chip artists, like in the same way that she then did. How do you think she found it? Or how invigorating was it? You know, she's a sponge and she absorbs everything around her. And in that group, you know, there were stars being born literally and figuratively and, and she was watching it happen. And so she must have been so turned on by the experience that she herself, you know, burst out of there like a cannon, as she likes to say. Well, tell me about that moment then, the, the big 
moment where she, well, there's multiple moments, but can you talk to me about her bursting out of the cannon when it was sensationally Madonna's period and she'd made it and she was the star that she kept telling everyone she was going to be? The moment Madonna became Madonna superstar was during the 1984 MTV Video Music Awards. Prior to that, she had a name, definitely. She was someone on the radar. But this performance made her a household name. Now, this song wasn't even available yet. She did it tumbling out of a, um, of a wedding cake. And as she made her way down the cake, she kind of did a very chaste, actually, these days, striptease. But at mm. the time, it was outrageous. She, she shook out her hair, you know, as if she was just coming to bed. She kicked off her shoes. She pulled off her veil. A lot of times in her performances, she rolls around on the floor. I don't know She's if you... She's writhing. No, I love this performance because, like you said, when you, at the time, it like absolutely scandalized viewers. And Annie Lennox said it was a whorish performance. But yeah. when you look at it now, you think it's very tame by modern it's standards. Nothing. Very tame by Madonna's own standards now. Right, right. But at the time, it was outrageous because the camera caught her dress up and her underpants were showing. And... I mean, the whole thing is laughable today, but after that, everyone was talking about Madonna. Of course, this was the first example, too, of her manager saying to her, you've done something that has just killed your career. That's it. You've gone too far. And of course, it had just the opposite effect. It didn't kill her career. It actually made her career. And that would be the history of Madonna. She always went too far, but whatever she did actually enhanced her career. Delory, you had a front row seat to Madonna's stratospheric success for 20 years as her backing singer and dancer. You worked together on the Who's That Girl tour. You were integral to Blonde Ambition in 1990, right up until Confessions on a Dance Floor in 2005. Do you remember your first ever meeting with Madonna? So I first met Madonna at an open call audition for singers in LA, 1987. And I was kind of, you know, keeping my eye out, looking over the balcony. Where's Madonna? But I had thought of her from her image of from the Material Girl video. Mm. So I was kind of like looking for the long blonde hair and everything. But then I see like this little person with really short hair and wire rim glasses. And when I heard her voice, I knew that was her. What did you honestly make of her when you first met her and had like a one-on-one interaction? You know, when I first met Madonna, right away you you know she's the boss you know I'd, I'd worked with some other artists you know usually you're in the studio and it's the producer the manager especially when they're female artists you get the vibe that they're the boss you know or i'd work on records where the artist was never even around but i got the feeling right away that like she's always there she has a say in everything and she has the final word and it was incredible because she was just the boss of this whole scene that was going on with the most incredible musicians in L.A. in the band. You know, all men. 
And the power she had was so much fun to be around. You know, I was always been like against smoking, for instance, you know, and we'd be like on set or in our rehearsal on the um, soundstage, but somebody would be smoking and she could just have the power to be like, where's that smoke coming from? I'm like, over there. <laughs> I'd point to like stage left and she'd just like take care of it right away, you know? I'm just curious, what was her life like in 87? How much did it change? Did you see it change from there to 1990 Blonde Ambition? Like, What was it like up close and what was she dealing with at the time? I mean, it was really exhilarating and exciting, like, you know, arriving in Japan, Osaka, and just being like, having seen footage of the Beatles arriving in America, you know, the, the mass hysteria, it was like that. You know, there was the the work, but then there was also like writing in the back of a limo with her, mm. going to like the Billy Idol concert. You know, she always was kind of like a big sister, I mm. felt. And what do you think is the biggest misconception about her and how we see her? She knows what she wants and she knows what she's doing. You know, I learned to just never doubt her because as we've seen for 40 years, you know, she's been able to continually manifest her art and her vision. Going in and recording Vogue, the vocals on that, we went into the studio and it was a whole different sound. And it was so up-tempo and dance and everything, and she knew exactly what she wanted. And then we go in the listening room, we just look at each other like, wow, this sounds incredible. And then there it becomes this huge, huge song. And what about the specific look of Vogue? You know, the radical queer ballroom aesthetic taken from LGBTQ clubs. Madonna absolutely brought that to a mainstream audience. Yeah, I mean, finding that dance, finding that, that underground culture, you know, these people that were doing this in the clubs and she experienced it in the clubs and wanted to bring that out. So she knew way before we did, she knew about it and found the dancers and then they taught us. You spoke to multiple people from her life. You came through decades of archive, old press cuttings, other biographies. What's the most striking or surprising thing that you learned about her? I think what's made her so important and made her so powerful is the fact that she has been courageous in a way that few men are and women rarely are. Madonna is self-created, entirely self-created. It was her drive that got her there. Everyone she worked with says that. And the forces she was up against, literally from day one of her career, telling her what she couldn't do, how she couldn't do it, the headlines that said, you know, she was a slut, she was a tramp, she had no talent, she couldn't sing, she was fat, you know, all of this stuff that normally would make someone shrivel up and die, it actually fueled her. And so her courage kind of swept up a generation of young women along with her first, and then swept up a generation of young gay men. Well, let's talk about that courage for a minute, because I don't think I realize, and Mary, as I've said, I'm a lifelong fan and love the book, but I don't think I realize the extent of her 
activism or at the very least mm. took for granted her place in queer culture and mm. her place for women in the music industry and actually how much it meant for her to be normalizing having very diverse crews that she worked with. Can you tell me a bit about what she did back in her day? So in the 80s, it's really hard for us to imagine, but there was a color kind of code with music. So there were black artists and white artists, and there were very few crossovers. It was a white male dominated world. It was men on stage. It was men writing the music. It was men producing the music. Um, and so Madonna, from the start, there was a really great, great quote. Someone said, what category do you fit in? And she said, new. And they said, well, what's new about it? And she said, me. And that sums it up. She just created her own world. And that world was female focused, not how men view women, but how women view women, how she views herself. I mean, there were a lot of women songwriters and singers like Joni Mitchell and Carole King. But in the pop rock world, that really didn't exist for, before Madonna. And so when she came out and, and did her performances, she wasn't out to seduce the men in the audience. She was singing to those girls. And so she would do naughty things on stage like faux masturbation and say dirty things. And the girls in her audience, you know, had never heard this before. And, you know, their parents were appalled. Everybody was appalled, but they got it. And by the time they left her concerts, they were changed forever. And so, you know, uh, that was her first really major impact. The second one was with the gay community. And that's because Madonna's friends in that important period in early New York were primarily gay men. And by 1984, 85, they were dying of AIDS and nobody was doing anything about it. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. That today from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, topping the list of likely victims are male homosexuals who have many partners. The U.S. government, it was the Reagan administration, and he was absolutely, you know, part of the religious right and very conservative. And there was no way he was going to talk publicly about AIDS because he would have had to talk about gay sex and that just didn't exist in his world. A combination of the country being in denial and bigotry. Exactly. So Madonna was watching these people she loved die, and she was not going to sit back and remain silent. From that point on, her emphasis was really about making sure that the gay community had a voice and a very vocal supporter. And so Madonna used her records, she used her money, she used her power, she used the megaphone of her celebrity, and spoke out about AIDS. A person can have AIDS for a long time without showing any symptoms. So protect yourself. If you do have sex, use a condom. And the culmination of that was her Blonde Ambition tour in 1990 and her Truth or Dare or In Bed with Madonna video made from that tour. And there she broke not only the barrier of saying, here are my dancers, they're out, they're proud, they're beautiful young gay men. So not only did she break this sexual barrier, she, she broke this color barrier on stage. And it absolutely 100% changed the narrative for people looking at that stage and seeing themselves there and thinking, wow, you know, I'm finally represented in it and, and I like how I see myself. When we talked about her AIDS activism, even when she released Like a Prayer in 1989, it included a pamphlet on safe sex. Could you tell listeners about that? When she released her Like a Prayer album, she made safe sex messaging 
part of the insert. And so people who bought the album, you know, read in very unvarnished language exactly what you should not do if you want to prevent yourself from getting AIDS. I mean, people said that saying the word virgin was outrageous. The language she used in her sex pamphlet was really beyond the pale. You know, she talked in various places, she talked about anal sex. And, and in those days, I mean, that was just something that wasn't said. So, so she just was unvarnished because she knew how serious it was. She really did a public service with that album. Coming up, older, wiser, no less shocking, why Madonna refuses to conform. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash today in focus. People say that I'm so controversial, but I think the most controversial thing I have ever done is to stick around. Mary, I think one of the isms that you haven't touched on is ageism. Because I was thinking, you know, throughout her career, she has constantly reinvented and remoulded her image and her sound. And now at 65, she's still very much shape-shifting. And looking at her now, you don't see her age on stage. You just think this is an alien from another planet. How is she doing this? How do you think she's handling all that? Yeah, I know. It's funny. You know, the first time I came across a mention of her age was when she was 29. Can you believe yeah. that? 29. I mean, Madonna at 29 was, you know, so vigorous and magnificent. And some reporter had the nerve to talk about, 
you know, that she was looking like she was aging and when is she going to retire? And so, yeah, now, you know, it's, and as you say, it's happened every decade, every album, every concert. And, and I, you know, it only increases as she does grow older. Not only do we suffer from racism and sexism, but we also suffer from ageism. And that is that once you reach a certain age, you're not allowed to be adventurous. You're not allowed to be sexual. You know, it, and I think that's rather hideous. I mean, is there a rule? I mean, what, are you supposed to just die when you're 40? And also there's that truth that you've really spoken to there because essentially she is always pleasing herself. When you look back yeah. at her career, she could and should have stopped doing films years ago. If you listen to the critics, she absolutely kept throwing herself into it because she kept challenging herself. She did West End theatre at a time when, you know, she knew that the critics would come for her in London. She didn't care. She's always seems to be doing new sounds, new art forms and to what end to essentially please herself? And this goes back to the New York days. There weren't artistic boundaries, so you could try it all. That, once again, is the milieu out of which she came, which helps you understand why her work is never just about music. It's always got an unbelievable visual element. And I think that that's, that's it. If she's excited by something, if she's excited by a film or a project, she's going to do it. And as you say, she knows she's setting herself up for criticism, you know, that the, the West End production. And, you know, working with David Mamet in New York was the same kind of thing. I mean, she took the toughest playwright in America, the most macho, unforgiving in every way playwright in America. And she said, OK, I'll do your play. I mean, that was just masochistic, but she did it. And, you know, the people who worked with her said she did a really great job, including Mamet and the producer. Of course, the critics all said she was terrible. But, you know, that's just her life. Mary, you can see Madonna's influence stretch out across the music industry, even when it's not acknowledged. To what extent do you think she has actually set the template for female pop success stories of today? And how much do you think that legacy will endure? Oh, I think she's absolutely set the template. There's no, I mean, I'm sure there would be a Beyonce and a Taylor Swift in some form, but I don't know. You know, I don't know how much control they would have of their careers. Prior to Madonna, in most cases, that didn't happen. She wasn't just a musician. She was a conglomerate, you know, an artistic conglomerate. And she, she moved the world along with her. Mary, earlier you said that when you began this project, you weren't really a Madonna fan, but you were committing to about five years of, of living completely within her life. At what point do you think you fell in love with her? I really, really appreciate the sex erotica justify my love period. I think in retrospect, that was so important because in Britain and the United States, not to mention elsewhere around the world, the limitations on a woman's sexuality and the limitations on gays and lesbians were so great. And so Madonna came through with this really, and a huge statement, a global statement that shocked everyone. And I think we're still living in the world Madonna created in the early 90s during that period today. Arguably, Madonna has never quite been afforded the credibility or appreciation as an artist that she might have. Critics have called her a cultural vampire. They put her success down to the fact that it's ambition rather than talent, that she picks the right people at the right time. And all of this has been used to deride her. You've gone back through all of those cuttings. You've read all that stuff about her. What do you make of it? 
you know, she says to herself, you know, to some people, I'm their worst nightmare. And she really is. You can say to a patriarchal, homophobic, racist society, she is because she is absolutely inclusive, speaks her mind, you know, doesn't ever flinch, refuses to remain quiet, and they can't put her in a box. And so they try to by denigrating her, but it hasn't worked. And it's been happening for 40 years. And it's just that, you know, she's forcing the entertainment industry to go places it didn't want to go and look at the world in a way it didn't want to look. And she empowered people that they didn't want empowered. And, and, um, and I think that's been the backlash. Mary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. That was Mary Gabriel, author of Madonna, A Rebel Life, which is out now. And Donna DeLore, singer and former backing vocalist and dancer to Madonna. You can hear Donna's music and find info on her shows at DonnaDelore.com. I also spoke to Jesse Rifkin, who gave me a walking tour of New York's music history, including the Madonna spots. You can find him and his book on walkonthewildsidenyc.com. My thanks to all of them. To clarify, rumours that Sade did once work as a bartender at Dance Terrier have never fully been confirmed, but I enjoy that this legend persists. Finally, this year for The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal, we're asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's all for today. I'm Nashin Iqbal. The producer was Natalie Khatena. Sound design was by Jim O'Donoghue-Martin. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back again on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.